your Bibles and turn to the text that Nick read for us. If you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to look on with us in that black-covered book around you. That is a Bible. It should be in front of you, near you, and say, hey, I don't have one. That's our gift to you. You're welcome to have it. And we're on, do you know what page it was? 956, 956 is where, right around there, all right, uh, is where we'll be this morning. Well, if you're just jumping in here, it's been a while, you haven't caught up online or, or such, and uh, jumping in here to our study, we're working through this gospel letter that God has preserved for us, this gospel of Corinthians, and questions we face Excuse me, there's questions that these Corinthians faced in their everyday lives, just day-by-day life. Things came up in the normal walk of life, and they had questions. And so they wrote a letter to Paul and, and said, Paul, hey, look, we got some problems, some issues. You, you need to help us out. And so we have re- preserved for us not their letter, but Paul's letter in response about everyday questions And the beautiful part about this preservation of this letter is that they address things that we deal with in our life as well. Now, we've worked through about half of the questions that these Corinthians wrote and asked, these situations and dealings. And uh, we worked through things, such things as conflict in the church with, like, church cliques, we could say. We've worked through... um, tolerance of sin, um, sin in the church and not tolerating it or what happens if you do. We work through lawsuits. We shouldn't take a brother or sister to Christ. We work through the topic of singleness. We work through the topic of marriage. We work through the topic of divorce and then and remarriage as well. The last few sessions together, the last few of our talks together, we've studied, uh, have revolved around relationships. Singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage, these sort of things. Relationships. And starting in chapter number 8, verse number 1, Paul is answering a question, another question that revolves around relationships as well. Now, the answer that he gives starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and it goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. Three chapters. Now, I do say eleven, chapter 11, verse 1 there. Um, I think that 11, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, where Paul says, be imitators of me, actually refers to what he's talking about here, starting in chapter 8 and verse 1. So I think it all goes together. Remember, chapters were just human additions. And so I think chapter 11, verse 1, actually uh, is the end of what we begin to, to start today. So, three chapters. But relax. I'm not going to go through all three chapters today. Okay. We will only deal with chapter 8. And actually, we're going to circle back to chapter 8 a few times here in the next couple weeks. Now, to understand the situation that Paul is referring to here and what's going on, first, we need to see, uh, we're going to see a few different things, and I've got to get my act together here. All right, there we go. All right, title of the lesson is Love at Personal Cost, and we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's the topic, I think. The dominant idea of what's going on here in chapter number 8. Now, we're going to see that through two major points. First of all, we're going to look at the tension. Now, 
there was tension between folks in this church, in this local church in Corinth. All right, go back to the text with me and read verses 1 through verse 3. The Bible says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge that we possess puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, though. But if anyone loves God, he is known of God. Now skip down to verse number 7. However, not all of us possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Brothers, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, if they see you eating in that idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Well, the general topic, this tension, is introduced in verse number one, where it says, now concerning food that's offered to idols. So there is some situation that's going on in this local church where there's this food that's offered to idols. Now, I'm going to say right up front this morning, this is totally out of our cultural zone, isn't it? I mean, unless you're doing something that the rest, I mean, the rest of us find out about it, you're, we're going to think you're kind of, you know, a little off. This is just totally out of our culture. But bear with me, you'll see through it, and you're going to see the thread of love throughout this text And you're going to see the application for us towards the end for our everyday lives as well. But we have to understand what's going on here. Why is there this tension? What is this thing about food offered to idols? Well, the issue in a nutshell was that within this church, as we just read in these verses, there was was something going on regarding food offered to idols. And some people have knowledge about that food that's offered to idols and what they think about it and what they understand it to mean or to be. But then there are other people who don't have that same understanding. Consequently, verse 12 says there was tension in the church. Now, the specific issue is found in that verse number 10. All right? Verse 10 says, for if anyone. So here are these anyones. There's this group of people, these anyones, whoever they are. And this, this group of people, they see you, so you have these anyones and these yous. All right, following with me? But they say, these people see you who have knowledge, and what are you doing? You're eating in an idol's temple. The tension here that we see was set up by four different things. And the very first thing that we see here is the place. The place is... Uh, helped to set up the tension. The place is that somebody was eating this food at an, at an idol's temple. 
Well, let me explain what this is all about. Each city, every city, had a city center where most of the business, most of the legal, most of the personal, uh, religious, even type of entertainment, this sort of thing happened. Every city had one of these places. Corinth was no different. A lot of personal interaction and this sort of thing. Well, a Greek man and, uh, named Pausinius, he traveled across Greece in about mid-2nd century. And he wrote what became a 10-volume work called Descriptions of Greece. And you'll see why this is important. And that work actually has survived till this day. And in that work, he mentions temples and statues for multiple Greco-Roman gods, gods that we would recognize and heard the name of, gods like Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Poseidon. And so within this, and specifically he writes about Corinth as he was traveling around in this 10-volume tome eventually, he sees these general markets. Um, He says that in Corinth there were two general markets that hugged the wall of the great archaic pagan temple. And a fish and a meat market that were across on a narrow street. And he saw this with his own eyes and he records it. On the west side of the city center, okay, on the west side of Corinth, was a huge temple dedicated to the imperial religion. Now, the imperial religion, they were required at that time, the Greco-Woman world, to, hail, you know, to claim that Caesar was one of the gods and they would offer sacrifices and tribute and this sort of thing to, to Caesar, the imperial religion. All of this, all of this that he saw was within 150 yards of the center of town. I mean, a small area, a city center. Now, we can understand this, can't we? I mean, just recently, and they're not even completely finished with it. Things are still going up over there, aren't they? Things are still going up. Our city of Dublin is building a city center. They built it, and they're adding on to it. It's a city center that's gorgeous. It's, it's separated by the Soto River in the middle, and there's a beautiful bridge uh, that separates both, uh, both parts of the city center and connected by a bridge. And we call it, Dublin calls it, the Bridge Park. So this is, we, we see these, but Easton is like a city center over on the east side as well. So, so we know about these city centers. Well, people come from all surrounding areas in Corinth to take, to take partake in personal business and socialization just as like people would do at Bridge Park. Maybe many of you have done that. Maybe some of you will go and eat at Cap City Diner or something after, after uh, uh, our worship time today. So just as many of you are going to do that, to go eat at a restaurant at Bridge Park, so too would people in Corinth. Corinth had restaurants just like Bridge Park has restaurants as well. But the restaurants in Corinth didn't look like the same as they did as the restaurants at Bridge Park. They were different. One scholar writes it this way. He said, in the ancient world, the temples were normally the restaurants. Another scholar writes, archaeologists have discovered that attached to some Corinthian temples were rooms for dining, which private dinner parties could use for banquets. Yet another scholar writes that there were multiple ways people viewed the meals eaten in these temples. There were some 
who thought the meal was actually, actually meant something connected to their deity, a sacrificial dinner or something, some theological or significant significance. And then this, art, this uh, scholar goes on to explain that there were others who viewed it as simply a social thing. He specifically says, quote, there is a good deal of evidence from the late Hellenistic and imperial periods for social interpretation of, this, of these religious meals in the Greco-Roman world. This evidence indicates that the general importance of table fellowship, the, the evidence indicates that there was general, uh, a general importance of table fellowship in civil, civic, fraternal, occupational, and religious associations was about social hospitality and good cheer, end quote. In other words, some people it was connected to their deity. It was a sacrificial type of pagan meal. But for others, it wasn't. They just wanted a good meal. One more explanation, all right? Professor Dennis Smith, he wrote a book entitled From Symposium to the Eucharist, and it was all about the subtitles, The Banquet in the Early Christian World. He says this, quote, How meals at temples were understood by the ancients is especially indicated by references found in the collection of invitations to a group like, a specific group, like religious group called the God of Serapis. In other words, they actually have these extant papyrus scripts that are still, they're extant, they're still alive today, they're still here, and they found out from these papyrus scripts, their actual invitations, like you would send an invitation to somebody for a birthday party, that's what they would do, they did the same thing. On these, so these are a lot, they're here today, he said, these invitations were part of a larger corpus of papyrus fragments from Egypt, all of which date from the first to the fourth centuries, we're talking times of Jesus, right? Some of the meals indicated in these invitations are secular in nature, yet they take place in the sanctuaries. For example, a marriage feast takes place, quote, in the temple of Sabazios, whatever that is. And a birthday feast takes place, quote, in the sanctuary of Serapis. All of that to say, there is wide, wide evidence that in these city centers, including the one in Corinth, meals were eaten in these temples. Not necessarily, though, connected to participation in some sort of godless pagan sacrifice. It was a regular part of culture for someone to have a party at a location that, yes, was a temple of some god, but the gathering had nothing to do with the pagan god. Sometimes temples just served as a restaurant type of building. Make sense? I think it makes sense. I can see it. So that's the first thing. All right? You have these temples, right, with different uses and functions. Secondly, there was a practice that instigated the tension as well. There is research as well that indicates that it is most likely possible, quite possible, that food that was used in a sacrifice or a pagan ceremony was sold, maybe even indirectly, but was sold to the family or the group that was using the banquet space in the temple. In other words, here is this pagan false god, and maybe it's you know, just horrific stuff that's going on, and they sacrifice this animal. Well, they have this 
all, got, all of the, the ancient cultic sacrifices, they would burn some of it on an altar. Then they would use, then they would have this leftover. They didn't burn it all. And so what do you do with this leftover meat? You know? I mean, all of us men in this room are like, I know what I'd do with the meat. Well, that's exactly what they thought too. So they would take the meat, and sometimes the temple people were like, well, we can make some money. So they're going to go across, remember? Remember Pausanese, uh, whatever his name was, the guy that wrote the 10-volume work? Remember he saw the fish, the fish market and the meat market just right in the narrow street right next door? Man, let's take it over there. Let's sell it to them. We'll make some money. Now, I'm tired of lamb. I want a side of beef tonight. So let's sell it, get the money, and we go buy some beef. But it is also quite possible that they, at the temple, sold the meat to these people who were using the temple just as a restaurant. So you see there's this practice that most likely went on. After selling, sacrificing their animals to the idols, the pagans would save some of their meat to eat on the temple grounds or to sell to vendors who would then even sell it in the meat market. So maybe these families got it directly or these groups got it directly from the, from the priest at the, at the pagan temple. Or maybe they went right across the street where the meat an hour ago was sacrificed at that same temple to a pagan god. You with me? So the practice here was something that was, caused tension. Further, the meat was a treat to a lot of people during this time. It was not a staple of most people's diets. I mean, we know this. We just went through the Gospel of Leviticus, right? And there were some people that were so poor that didn't have ox or, you know, a lamb or something. They had to sacrifice what? Grains and turtle doves, birds, something that was cheaper. Meat wasn't a staple for everybody. And so, while it wasn't a staple, most uh, people often ate meat in the temple for non-religious business meetings or on special occasions for non-religious social gatherings, such as celebrating a person's birthday. Such meals did not necessarily always begin with the demonic religious ceremony of sacrifice and prayer. Meals in the temple could merely be social with food that maybe was sacrificed to a god. Okay? That's the second thing. Now, these types of meals were, in some cases, um, again, just folks going to a restaurant. Third, what we need to see out of this is the people's past. Specifically, each believer has a past, just like we do. The people in their past. We've already seen from Acts chapter 18 that the church in Corinth was made up of an assortment of people with various religious backgrounds. Remember that? I mean, even last week I went over Acts 18 again. There were some with pagan religious backgrounds who had previously participated in sacrifices and ceremonies, but then the gospel rescued them, gloriously rescued them from that life. Oh, those gods are fake. Now I'm a, I, now I'm a Christian. My, I understand what Jesus has done for me, and I've given up that life. Man, I was rescued from that. Pagan backgrounds. There were also people who had God, good, God-centered covenant backgrounds. There were some Jewish people who really did have faith and believed and practice, and, and you could tell by their obedience, they didn't think that the sacrifices rescued them, but hey, look, you know what? I'm going to obey God. This is what he asked me to do, and I have a covenant with him, and he's going to bless me, and I'm going to obey him. There were some people that had a good religious background, we would say, right? And those people, they just realized, man, that God Poseidon, he's fake. He's got a really cool-looking trident spear, but other than that, he's fake. It doesn't mean anything. Because I know about the God of the covenant of Israel. So there were those people. 
The third group of people, there were still others, maybe with little or no religious background at all. Not pagan and not God-covenant-centered background. They just were kind of secular type of people. And they grew up frequenting these types of restaurants, temple restaurants. And in their minds, there was no connection to religion at all. It was just a good old meal. You know, hey, it's Saturday night. Guess what? I know Sunday morning the whole Smith clan's getting together at Poseidon's temple because we're going to have some big, we're going we're gonna to eat that bowl. You know, we're going to get together. And they did that every week. I don't know if there was a Smith family, and I don't know if they did that every week, but you know what I'm saying. All of this, these three things together, all of this leads to, therefore, the fourth thing, and this is the main thing that caused the tension, or was the tension, was that you had two groups of people based on their past, based on the practice, how they viewed the practice. They had two different positions. And you combine all of these things together, you can see there was this recipe for tension. Now, there were two positions that emerged. If you look at verse 10 again, I, if you remember I said there were the, if anyone sees you. So there were the anyone's and there was the you's, Right? There were some who ate meals in the location of the idol's temple, uh, 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 of the, in the idol's temple. Those are the use. They see you do this. And some who did not. They were the any ones that saw you do it. Okay? And these two groups, those that saw their brother and sister do it, and those that were actually eating in these restaurant-type things, places, these two groups are identified by their consciences. In verse 7, it says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as if it was really offered to an idol. Like, in their hearts, it was really offered to it, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. All right, so here's the two positions. Those who have a weak conscience and those who do not. Now, I want to say, right before I move on to this, Perhaps you have heard this called in the past. There are also two other passages, Acts 15 and Romans 14, that, ad- that address this general topic, and we'll, we'll get to those. Not today, but other times. You've heard this called the weaker brother, stronger brother argument. Have you ever heard it like that? I, I honestly, um, I think that I don't appreciate that, that designation. I, when people, just this last week, I heard somebody use it in a separate context, a different context, and, uh, you know, I'll just, it's, it, they're the weaker brother. And I, I totally get what this person was talking about. I didn't say anything to him. I totally understand that. I just don't think it's really the best designation. Why? Is because it promotes the arrogance that's denounced in the first three verses. Knowledge puffs up. And so oftentimes what happens is, is we say the weak. I'm not the weaker brother. I mean, not one of us in this room thinks we're the weaker brother, right? But let me tell you, there are people that I know are the weaker brother. And it just really serves to just make, make a difficult situation even more difficult. So, how I often refer to, the, to this is just issues of conscience. Issues of conscience. Our consciences can be and are different in some situations and circumstances. It's just the way it is. And this is where you start to connect the dots with, uh, this is not our practice, but we do have differences in our consciences even today, don't we? Well, first of all, what is a conscience? So let me hit that real quick. 
really quickly, when you go, there's about 30 places in the New Testament that speak about the conscience. Conscience means, according to the original word, quote, the faculty which can distinguish between right and wrong, end quote. All right? So you're just talking about, it's not the little devil on one shoulder and the little angel on the other. That's how it's characterized. It's not what it is. It's just, it's that, the conscience inside of you that says, that's right and right. You know, that's right, that's not right, that's wrong, you know, that sort of thing. Now, back to the two positions. No matter what English translation you have, okay, the original word behind the word weak, when it says their conscience is weak, that word weak, that word means without strength. So it does make sense why people, you know, why it's translated weak and why they would say it's the weaker brother. I get it. That's why I don't, I just don't like that, trend, that definition. Sue me if you think I'm crazy, but... That's just what I, I think. So the problem we have, though, is that it usually is perceived as negative. Whenever we use the word neg- uh, weak, we, we think bad, don't we? We think failure. We think less of a person. Oh, you're weak. You know? But nowhere in this context is the brother or the sister who has a different conscience considered lesser or bad or a failure. Paul doesn't condemn them. He just says their conscience is different. The word there where it means without strength is trying to tease out the nuance that it's trying for us to understand is that their conscience is enable. That's a great word. Their conscience is enable. In other words, their conscience won't let them. Their conscience, conscience is enable to do something or enable to go somewhere or enable to come to some conclusion. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong. It just means it's different. This weak conscience it talks about, therefore, is really just a conscience that's unable to do something. Now, we're going to spend a few weeks on this, so you're probably thinking of, well, can our consciences be wrong? Yes. We'll deal with that another time. The context here is that a brother or sister happens to see or somehow comes into knowledge that one of their Christian friends is eating at one of these temple restaurants. And so they see this, and then verse 10, it says, seeing this, it encourages that brother with the, in a, the conscience that is weaker, it says, but the enable conscience, they see this and they're like, oh, maybe I can do the same. Man, that's, that must be no big deal because I see Paul eating at the, at the temple. Now, remember that some had a past where they were rescued from pagan idolatry. Many had a fairly dramatic change of life. They had been redeemed from the false truth of of deities as represented in these temples. And so, when they saw a Christian friend sitting down in a banquet room associated with a pagan god, most likely, they could come to the conclusion, that the meat was was sacrificed to that idol or some idol earlier in the day. This conflicted them. That conflicted their conscience. They were troubled in their conscience. Let me put it a few different ways to to, uh, try to really see maybe what was going on. They were troubled in their conscience, their conscience being that thing that helped them to determine what was right or wrong. They were pulled in two different directions. That created an inner debate about, man, is that really right? Is that really wrong? They were essentially full of self-doubt or insecurity. They just wondered what was right now. And they became anxious their conscience was making them wonder what, what they were rescued from. Their, their conscience was unable to rest, to settle, to walk in freedom and confidence. Why? Because they just happened to see Brother Paul eating at a temple. Not that Paul did it, but 
You see what I'm saying. So they came to the conclusion, you know what? Maybe it's not wrong, and I can go ahead and eat there next Saturday night. But the whole time, their conscience is saying, conscience is saying, no, 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 you're not. That's the first group. Second group of folks is identified in verse 7 as those who have some sort of knowledge, right? Back to verse 1, knowledge about eating in this temple, this sort of thing. And we find out what that knowledge specifically is in verses 4 through verse 6. Look there, look there with me. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Okay? This is a, this is a great creedal passage right here, this 4, 5, and 6. Wonderful, lots of truth packed into there. All believers recognize the truth of verse number 6. That there is only one God, and he's, he's the only basis for all aspects of life, existence, salvation. Every believer that came to faith knew that. But not all believers were in the same place in the application of that knowledge. For many, they understood the non-reality. For, for those, there were those that understood that there was these false gods were not even real. They understood verse 4 and 5. In other words, the food that they ate at these temple restaurants was just food. Those gods were fake. So what? It was offered to an idol. There's only one God. He's, tr- he's real. He's true. So what? You're, you're not going to eat that slap? You're not going to eat that ribeye steak? <laughs> you know, give it to me. I will. Because it doesn't matter. That was a fake God. To them, it was just food. And maybe it was a way for even some of those believers to meet unbelievers in something like a restaurant, and they, their intent was to evangelize. Hey, Billy, let's go, out to, let's go to lunch Saturday night. Let's go have a good steak. Well, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's meet at, the, uh, let's read, meet at Poseidon's Temple. Sure, I'll meet you there. Eight o'clock. To them, the place was just a place, and the food was just a food. It was just food. Their conscience gave them freedom to eat. It was part of their, they understood it, verse 6, the application, verse 4, they understood that that was their freedom in Christ to be able to do so. So, we put all this together, all right? There were some who thought it was not wrong to eat in the temple restaurants, but there were some who, because of their backgrounds and theological understanding, their conscience questioned and would not allow them to eat at these temple restaurants. For these folks, it was sinful because their conscience said no, and so they should not go against their conscience. Their conscience was, made them unable to eat at an idol's temple. So the tension here is pretty obvious, isn't it? Now you understand what's going on. Different than chapter 10, which we'll get to in a, couple, a week or two, or three. Different than chapter, three, or chapter 10, this is the situation in chapter 8. Now, second, first we had the tension, but secondly, what do you do about this? Who's right? Are the meat eaters right? Or are the, other, the people who don't eat meat right? Who's right? What do you do in this situation? What, what should Paul do in this situation? What should Christus, Crispus do in this situation? What do you do? 
The answer is found in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. You know what the answer is? The answer is love. That's what the answer is. Now, this passage teaches us a few things about love. Verse, you know, love controls knowledge. And, you know, verse 7, it says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Verse 6, heavy doctrine. There's one God. All the other gods are fake. Verse 4 and 5, that's the application. We can eat at a temple. Verse 7 says, not everybody understands it the same way as you do. Back to verse 1 through verse 3, you think you know everything? You don't really know everything. You know, you, you didn't come in, you weren't, didn't grow up in their shoes, you didn't understand, you know, it, not, you might not know as much as you think you do. Those who understood the non-reality of the pagan gods ate at the temple and they weren't wrong. You'd say, you'd say, well, who was right? Well, the people who ate the steaks weren't wrong. As a matter of fact, Paul says in this specific situation, he says in verse 1, we know. He says in verse 4, we know. Verse 6, he says, yet for us. Verse 8, he says, us and we. Paul's lumping himself actually into that group of meat eaters at, the, at these, idol, uh, these temple restaurants. He's saying, yeah, we could do that. He wasn't saying it was wrong. Paul recognizes that, there's, that this theology and practice, it's not off. He's not saying, oh, you know, you, that's bad theology. He didn't say that. But he does say in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours, in other words, you know, we hear that all the time. Well, I have the right. I have the right. I've got this right, and I've got that right, and it's my right to do this. Paul says, but take care. In other words, they do have, in one sense, a right, meaning a freedom of action to visit these restaurants. They can do it. But these believers needed to recognize that they are that there are, for a variety of reasons, differences of conscience. And so, therefore, Paul says, I won't even ever eat meat again if it's going to make my brother offend or make my brother stumble and sin. What do you do? You don't eat it. Why? Because you love your brother. It's not a, so really, I ask the question, who's right or wrong? It, it's really not the right answer or right, the right question. It's not even the right question. The issue is love. Will a believer, will you, and we'll look at some applications here in a minute, but let me ask you this. Will you, are you willing to limit your freedom, to limit your position, to limit your practice out of love for another believer? You know, if you don't love, you know what happens? Verse 10 through verse 12. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, in his heart, in his mind, his conscience is telling him, no, 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 this, this meal is really, a, this is a sacrifice to a pagan god. Don't do it. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, is destroyed. Verse 12, thus, this is sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. And when you do this, you sin against Christ. Essentially, there were some in this local church who didn't care 
about their Christian friend, causing that person to question their position, encouraging them not to walk by faith, but to violate their conscience. So they ended up wounding, wounding those people. And you know what happens when people violate their conscience? They end up wounding their conscience, meaning this taught them to ignore their conscience. Ultimately, a person going down this path then could be led right back into the sinful and pagan lifestyle that they were rescued from. And so you know what you do? Verse 13 is what you do. You just don't cause your brother to stumble. Now, we're instructed in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. In other words, it really is not that big of a deal. Whether or not this group of believers who ate at the temples was able to do so, it didn't matter. They would survive. I am sure that they had diet plans back at this time. They didn't have to eat there. They could find other ways to celebrate birthdays, other ways to have evangelistic meals. Hey, let's not go to Poseidon's temple. Why don't you come over to my house? You know, brother and sister, listen. Listen very carefully. Loving each other is a big deal. It's a very big deal. You want to know how big? Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, what does that last phrase say? He is known of God. If anyone loves God, he is known of God. What does that mean? It means that those who genuinely love God, as evidenced by love for other people, those are the people that God knows, relationship-wise. In other words, pretenders, people who are not really believers, don't love other people. If you love somebody else, okay, if you love other people, you're showing that you do love God and that you really belong to him. But if you don't love other people, then you're really a pretender. Because real Christians love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's well, this is how strong that God says it in verse number three. That's a big deal. Pretenders don't really love. Makes you wonder Makes you ask yourself sometimes whether you're really a pretender. Maybe it does. First John, very, First John 4 is very clear when it says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That is, you can't get more clear than that. Just as there are those who have knowledge that pagan gods are fake, so too there are those whose relationship with God is fake if they do not believe. True believers will love their brothers and sisters. That's what this passage is all about. Now, in closing, as I said, we, we reread through this and we're like, yeah, this is not our culture. You know, what, what's this have to do with me? So I have got two illustrations, one a personal one, and one, uh, one, another one that I heard from somewhere else. Okay, so let me, let, me, let me share those with you. 
And I'm just going to paint really broad strokes, okay? Because in your mind, sometimes illustrations fail. And in your mind, you might be thinking, well, what about this? What about that? I totally get it. So let me paint really broad strokes. And maybe that you can see, you can see the underlying point is to be able to love your brother or your sister, okay? All right? Let me start with this personal one. About, it's about music. One time, I was driving my car. And in, in my car, I had um, a CD of a specific artist that was playing. Uh, it was a folk genre artist. And I was listening to this music, and uh, somebody was with me, a man was with me, and a man that was older than I was in, with me in the car. And um, I said something about it, and uh, that person said to me they didn't really like to listen to that artist because it reminded them. I, you know, I said to them, well, why? I mean, there's nothing, I mean, it's folk music, it's kind of benign, you know. And he said, well, it reminded them, it brought them back to a previous time in their life that was full of sin and rebellion against God. And that was the artist that they often chose to listen to because this person used to live in Colorado and John Denver lived in Colorado and some of his music talks about Colorado. And so it brought him in his mind back to a time that was really dark, a time of rebellion. And so it wasn't something that for them in their mind that they could listen to without it potentially affecting them in a negative way, perhaps even tempting them to return to their past rebellion. You know, perhaps in their mind they thought, well, you know what, if Matt can listen to that, maybe I can too. Well, all the while their conscience is telling them, don't do it, don't do it. Because maybe for them it was a temptation to return to something that they shouldn't. Make sense? So, what do you do in that situation? One more. Sometimes there are folks that find their value and worth in their children. Literally, like literally they think that they, if they invest all of themselves and their resources in their kids and that they're great parents, you know, and then, then, you know what, God will be pleased with me and everything will be fine. Essentially, and this is reality, some people find their salvation, what they think will commend them to God, they find it in their kids. Well, one of the things, all of that to say, one of the things that parents can do with their kids is sports. There's a reason why we have the term soccer mom. Every weekend, every night, uh, 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 you know, every weeknight, every weekend, summer camps, travel trips, individual, individual training, and all sorts of things. And they say, you know what? Th- th- their, their life is filled with this. Well, let's say one day, somewhere, somebody shares faith with them, and they come to faith in Christ, the family does. And they figure out, oh, yeah, there's more to life than soccer. Guess what? Sunday, I get to go worship my king, my savior. So they don't do soccer. Sundays are not soccer anymore. Sundays are for the Savior. Well, one day they're there at the service. And they don't see their friends there, the Smith family. They don't see the Smith family there. And so they say, huh, hope they're okay. They shoot a quick text. Hey, hope you're okay. Missed you today. And the Smith family shoots back, oh, yeah, we're in Indiana at the soccer, comp- the soccer tournament all day today. And I think you can see probably where this would go for that family. That was saved out of that. Wait a minute. Oh, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad. 
Maybe I just get Junior back in the tournament every now and then. And the issue is not who's right or wrong. The issue is not is it right or okay. Romans 14 talks about some people esteem certain days better than others. That's not the issue. So I'm not, like, I don't want you to hear, are you saying that if I ever play sports or I miss church on a weekend, that it, I'm not saying that. That's not the issue. But I think you can see where it could cause tension in somebody's conscience. Now, other examples could, could be given too. Things like beverage use of alcohol or even playing certain games like poker. There are some of you in here who face cards was anathema when you were growing up. If you, had, if you had cards, playing cards, you were seen like the cousin of the devil. And <laughs> you're shaking your head yes, because it's true. That's the way you were. Some people, they just can't go back there. Maybe they were rescued from, I don't know. Other examples could be given. But maybe, maybe none of these examples connects with you or your life situation. And I get it. But listen to this. No matter who you are, the application for all of us is that we need to love our brothers and our sisters, even at a cost to ourselves. Even at a cost to ourselves. Love at personal cost. And I hope as a church that we can be resolved to love each other, even if it costs us. That's the type of church that we need to be. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying, let's be that church. Make sense? Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for this truth today. Thank you for your word and for how it 